Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 360th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them, of course, as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host, Holly Louie. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, and good morning, Holly. Thanks for sitting in this morning with Dr. Reamer. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're honored to have on the broadcast the 2019 president and chair of AHIMA, Valerie Watzloff. That is indeed an honor, Chuck. Valerie was a guest on our Talk 10 Tuesday in the past, but it's really special that she's found time to be with us this morning. Yes, and we're also honored to have on the broadcast our own Stanley Nogginson on his Reg Watch report. It's always an honor to have Stanley with us. In fact, Stanley has been with us since we first started broadcasting, and that was during the run-up to the implementation of the ICD-10 code set. And speaking of code sets, Laurie Johnson will be reporting on the 10 most expensive chronic conditions with regards to ICD-10 codes. And you've got a report later on the broadcast, don't you? What are you going to be talking about? Coding is the cause of surprise bills, Chuck. Ooh, yeah, that certainly is the case. We have much news to report during today's Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to a free three-day trial of the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast portal. Check out the exciting new webcast portal and discover all the essential educational webcasts at your fingertips. Here now is Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck. My topic for today is, does all the uh, healthcare data that we currently get, is it really helpful? So, for years, Medicare has been using a star rating system to measure how well Medicare Advantage and Medicare Part D plans work. And Medicare scores how well the plans perform in several categories, including quality care, customer service, and ratings range from one stars to five stars, with five being the highest and one being the lowest. And the report, the ratings are computed using data coming from the HEDA system. In addition to that, nursing homes have a star system as well that they have been using for years with one to five stars based on the quality of, of care provided in the nursing homes. Many managed care providers only contract with nursing homes that have a five-star rating. In addition, every hospital, nursing home, and end-stage renal dialysis provider in the country gets a report called the Program for Evaluating Payment Patterns Electronic Report, or PEPR for short. Hospitals now have a five-star rating system in addition to the, to the age gap and mortality data that's being put out to the public. End-stage renal dialysis facilities now also have a, a star rating system. And effective January 1st, all hospitals in the country had to comply with a transparency rule requiring them to put out uh, information on their pricing on their websites. So has this deluge of information helped patients or has it helped providers? Based on my view of what I've seen both from, from clients and providers as well as what I'm seeing from patients, Providers and patients are not actually using the data that is, that is coming into the end of the system. Many hospitals simply posted what they call their basement pricing file with no explanation onto the website. Uh, in addition to that, nursing homes are also getting readmission data uh, for all their patients that are being readmitted. So is this affecting choice? It doesn't seem to be. And in addition, even more strikingly, I find that the providers uh, are not using the data 
And so really it's come down to the point where the only ones that, that are actually using the data are consultants like myself. Uh, you would think that the patients would, would make, make their choice on which facility to go to based on mortality data, but it seems that they're more likely to use their, their uncle or their cousin in making these decisions. So with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's March 12th, and you're listening to the 360th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And today's broadcast features Ahima 2019 President and Board Chair, Professor Valerie Wasloff. Stand by. Accomplish big things in little time. AHIMA's on-demand coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keep pace with the rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All you need is an hour. AHIMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics like the value of a complete quality coding audit program, improving revenue integrity, the new frontier for HIM professionals, APR-DRG comprehension, phases, steps, and subclasses, and other webinars, too. Visit ahimastore.org to browse all topics. And now it's time for RegWatch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare IT authorities, Stanley Knox. Good morning, Stanley. Say, Stanley, a lot of news is coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know about? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to our audience and all our guests. There are two major rules to advance the interoperability of health information, published from ONC and CMS uh, in cooperation. These agencies are clearly cooperating to have a consistent approach. The rules were, the proposed rules were published on uh, last Monday with a comment date of May 3rd. The key item uh, that they've announced is that patients should have the ability to move from health plan to health plan or provider to provider and have both their clinical and administrative information travel with them throughout their journey. So attaching the data to the patient is what CMS and ONC are looking at. ONC is focusing on providers and electronic health records. CMS is focusing on health plans. In, as part of the ONC proposals, they're looking to simplify the certification program. They want to adopt a new data set, the United States core data set, as a standard for data collection and data availability. They want to establish and follow a predictable, transparent, and collaborative process to expand that data set, including providing stakeholders with the opportunity to comment on the expansion, so opening that up to everybody to uh, have suggestions on that. They're coming up with a new electronic prescribing standard, uh, becoming, the, becoming a baseline for EHR certification. They want to establish criteria to enable data export from an electronic health record either for a single patient as a patient might move from provider to provider or for groups of patients. That is, if a provider wants to change electronic health records, uh, they want to require the uh, expiring electronic health record to do a complete output of all patient data so that it goes automatically into the new electronic health record. They want to standardize um, a application programming interface or a hook into the system for patient and population services certification, requiring the use of a new standard, the HL7 Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource Standard, basically uh, 
saying that there's going to be a standard way for app developers, mobile app developers, and others to get into electronic health records and extract data. Pretty exciting here. They want to develop a standards version advancement process allowing developers to voluntarily implement and use new versions of standards um, as long as the newer version was uh, approved by the National Coordinator uh, for uh, Health Information Technology, meaning we wouldn't have to go through a regulatory process uh, to update the standards. They came up with two new privacy and security transparency attestation certification criteria whether uh, certified health IT supports encrypting authentication, uh, encrypting authentication credentials and or multi-factor authentication. They are actually coming up and suggesting real-world testing requirements and came up with uh, rules for prohibiting information blocking and uh, exceptions. So that's a lot of clinical data that would now be available to patients. CMS came up with a proposed rule that requires Medicare Advantage Organizations, state Medicaid and CHIP fee-for-service programs, Medicaid managed care plans, and CHIP managed care entities, and the exchange uh, insurers to <clears throat> implement, test, and monitor uh, published HL7, FHIR, as I said before, APIs, to make patient claims and other health information available to patients through third-party applications and developers. Um, and uh, requiring all of these organizations to participate in trust networks to improve interoperability. There are also two key letters uh, that were sent by the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics to CMS, one that I think listeners of our broadcast are very, would be very interested in. They suggest that, that HHS should use sub-regulatory processes to make version updates to the ICD the ICD code set in the same way it handles updates to all the other named HIPAA code sets, and that HHS, HHS should invest now in a project to evaluate ICD-11 and develop a plan that will enable a smooth and transparent transition from ICD-10 to ICD-11 at the optimal time. What they want to do is uh, eliminate this complicated regulatory process and allow the industry and the government to figure out the best time to implement ICD-11, moving from ICD-10 to ICD-11. That's a really a key recommendation. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the department does about adopting that regulation. Holly, that's my report, and back to you. Thank you, Stan. That was Healthcare IT Authority Stanley Nockinson. Stanley is the founder of Nockinson Advisors, LLC. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Holly, very much. Stanley, thanks very much for an excellent report. Have you ever asked yourself, what are the 10 most expensive chronic conditions? I asked my doc, he only could come up with five. Well, here now with the top 10 list is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Holly, and hello to our listeners. This morning, I am taking the David Letterman approach and have a top 10 most expensive chronic condition list. Healthpayer Intelligence published this list in July of 2017. The list includes cardiovascular disease, smoking-related health issues, alcohol-related health issues, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, obesity, arthritis, asthma, and stroke. In the article that is published on ICD-10monitor.com, I thought it would be interesting 
to see if there was much overlap between ICD-10-CM coding, clinical documentation integrity, and hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs. What I found was that specificity is key for these chronic conditions. Specificity can determine comorbidity complication status for MSDRGs, as well as qualifying as an HCC. The method of gaining specificity is through clinical documentation integrity process. It is important to know that codes and reimbursement mechanisms um, so that clinical documentation can support you. For example, cardiovascular diseases is a very broad topic, but specific conditions are MCCs or CCs such as CAD with a form of angina or acute or chronic forms of congestive heart failure. From an HCC perspective, the chronic CHF and many of the heart arrhythmias qualify. There is an overlap between CCs and MCCs and HCCs, and clinical documentation integrity is the process in which your entire organization, um, which includes facility as well as physician-owned practices, can achieve the appropriate reimbursement. So that's my top ten list for today, Holly. So it's back to you. Geez, thanks, Lori. That was a big one. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. This morning, we're honored to have on the broadcast the 2019 president and chair of AEMA, Valerie Watzloff. Dr. Watzloff, in her day job, is the vice chair of education and associate professor within the Department of Health and Information Management in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. She also holds a secondary appointment in the Graduate School of Public Health. And so, Valerie, I want to say welcome back. It's been a few years since you were on our Last broadcast, I was back in June 2017. Welcome back. What have you been up to? Well, thank you so much, Chuck, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here uh, with you again today. Um, I am so excited to be the 2019 President and Chair of the Board of Directors of the American Health Information Management Association, or uh, AHIMA, particularly uh, during this time of our change in transformation. I think, as you all know, there's constant changes in healthcare technology, in uh, payment and business models, and also in consumer engagement. So AHIMA's vision for the future is to really focus on some new areas, expand our footprint, and better serve our members, not only today, but also tomorrow. Our goal is to transform, renew, and innovate. So we are referring to uh, this process of transformation by using a series of pivots. And our first pivot is to focus on our current strengths while we explore our areas for growth. And what this means is that we are establishing a culture where we develop more innovative products and services for our members and also our future members. It also means we are developing areas where we are already very strong, but at the same time we want to pivot for the future by laying the foundation for innovation and greater impact within the healthcare ecosystem. And so together, we're using what we call a bridge strategy, and this is a way for us to get from where we are now to our long-term strategy. And we could not perform this transformation without the strong leadership, support, and voice of our members, our stakeholders, and our other constituents 
uh, because they have provided us important feedback that will help us craft a new mission, vision, values for AHIMA that will come out in the spring of this year. We will also build a three-year strategic plan from 2020 to 2023 in which our members and other stakeholders will continue to provide input and a voice to continue on this road of transformation, renewal, and innovation. And we plan to have that strategic plan out to the public by the summer. And with the strong leadership of our CEO, Dr. Rylisa Wiggs-Harris, and her entire leadership team, we are in excellent hands to achieve these transformational changes. Other transformational change that we foresee will include increased partnerships, audience-focused solutions, and the ability to investigate and prioritize some new business models. We are also gearing up for our HEMA Advocacy Summit, which will take place March 25th to 26th in Washington, D.C., and here we will be hearing from the Office for Civil Rights and how it seeks to modernize HIPAA to drive value-based care. We will also be hearing from the Office for the National, of the National Coordinator how it plans to improve the interoperability of health information. We will receive an update on ICD-11's development process and implementation considerations, and we'll learn about the open notes movement and how the sharing of documented notes with patients can improve their quality of care. And we will also be advocating for many of these issues when we travel to Capitol Hill to meet with Congress. And around the same time, we will be celebrating our 30th annual Health Information Professionals Week. This will be from March 24th to the 30th. Health Information Professionals Week, or HIP Week as we call it, is a great opportunity for our professionals to showcase the benefits of their profession and collectively work to lead the way in health information management. And my goal for 2019 is to ensure that our members' voices are heard through our new mission, our new vision, our new values, and our future strategic planning. We could not do this without their strong voices. And on behalf of the entire Board of Directors, I want to thank our members for their continued support. This is a very, very exciting time to be an HIM professional and a member of AHIMA. And as we gaze into the future, we may want to take to heart the words of Oprah Winfrey when she said, step out of the history that is holding you back and step into the new story you are willing to create. So let's take that step together today. Thank you very much. That's it, Holly. Back to you. Thank you so much, Valerie. That was Dr. Valerie Watzloff. She is the 2019 AHIMA President and Chair of the Board of Directors. Chuck? Thanks, Holly. And Valerie, thank you so very much for being on our broadcast this morning. We are very honored to have you here. And by the way, ICD-10 Monitor is going to be saluting HEMA's Health Information Professionals Week. It's coming your way March 24th. More details will follow as we honor the work being performed every day by these very dedicated professionals. We asked Holly Louie for some thoughts on a healthcare billing issue that's captured her attention. Holly, it's your turn. Thanks, Chuck. Yes, surprise bills have certainly captured my interest and attention, and so I've been doing a deep dive beyond the headlines and the blaming and the finger pointing. And ERs, EDs, are one of, if not the biggest contributing factor to some of these concerns about um, surprise bills. But I'm learning that there's a lot of issues buried underneath there. Yesterday, we discussed payers denying legitimate emergency claims for all ilk of, frankly, cockamamie reasons and idiosyncratic coverage policies. However, today, what I wanted to talk about 
is coding and the problems that it can cause for emergency department patients and the resulting surprise bills that could ensue. One of the things I've uncovered in my due diligence and research is that depending on the specific site and the EHR utilized in the conventions, many ER providers don't have a good knowledge or how to pick the best diagnosis codes. And a lot of times they just choose some unspecified code that's not really descriptive of why the patient is there. And in some cases, they've been allowed to set up their own pick list, so to speak, that have very limited and very uh, generic codes rather than specified ones. The other thing I've learned that was really surprising to me is how many facility and ED coders are not familiar with and have never been educated on the Prudent Layperson Act. And that the key to emergency visits, real emergency visits, is what brought the patient to the emergency department that a prudent, rational, logical thinking layperson would truly believe was an emergency. And the way that the coders coded as the final uh, diagnosis determination is not necessarily representative. So as a case in point, a mother brought her young son to the emergency department. It was on a weekend. It was after hours. So she didn't have other choices and wouldn't have picked them anyway. She's very knowledgeable. She's a certified coder. She's a certified trainer and long experience in the clinical environment. Her son had a very high fever that was not responsive to antipyretic medications. He was vomiting incessantly, and he suddenly broke out in hives from head to foot. I think any reasonable mother would think that was an emergency, and so they did go to the emergency department. The emergency physician was also very concerned and started a workup for possible meningitis or other infectious causes of this sudden onset of very severe symptomology. The child required IV fluid resuscitation for dehydration. He required multiple medications and was there for many hours while they tried to ascertain what the problem was and how to be stabilized. In the final coding, though, by the facility for the cause for the emergency department, the only diagnosis code reported was unspecified virus. There was nothing about a fever, nothing about vomiting, nothing about urticaria, and so insurance denied. The mother petitioned the hospital to re-review the record and to reconsider the coding that had been done of only unspecified virus, which was not covered by her insurance. And the hospital refused and said, when our code is coded, it stays. We never change it. We never reconsider. I think that's problematic, number one. And number two, then the mother petitioned her insurance company to review the medical record, which she had legitimately obtained, to prove that it really was an emergency visit. It was completely reasonable under prudent layperson, and that the coding was not reflective of the acuity or the emergent nature of the visit. The insurance company also refused to review or reconsider the record or any other evidence and said, once it's coded, it's coded. That's what we rely upon, and it is not our role to re-review appeals of medical records by patients. So, Chuck, this is really bothering me because some of these surprise bills, I think, are preventable, addressable, 
And I do not think patients should be surprised with thousands of dollars out of pocket for a scenario like this that I think is very easily addressed through education, training, and maybe some changes in some practices for specific reasons, such as prudent layperson. Chuck, that's my report for today that caught my attention. Back to you. Thanks, Holly, very much. Excellent report, and we appreciate your sharing that information with us today. Let's take a look at some of the questions that came in. Uh, our friend Rose said, could Stanley provide a link to the ONC rule? We will work with Stanley. Also, uh, Fanny wanted to know, could uh, Stanley's report on those changes be made available? And we're happy to tell you that Stanley will be allowing us to publish his report from this morning. Uh, thanks very much. And Stanley, are you there? Our buddy George has a couple of questions to ask you. I'm here, Chuck. Without going into a lot of detail, uh, he was most appreciative of the Clinical Information Exchange Initiative over the years. And he, of course, says he applauds the proposed rules. But he seems to think it's the EMR, EHR vendors in their willingness to fulfill their obligations in this space. He talks about seeing clinical data blocking and payment for this data. He says, do you think the uh, rules are going to change any of these attitudes or practices by EHR and EMR vendors? That was a great question. The EHR and EMR vendors have actually, in their association, asked the department for more time to respond to these proposed rules than the 60-day limit. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. The rule is chock full of prohibitions against information blocking um, and uh, allowing patients to get their data for free. They also require that in order to be certified, the EHRs and EMRs have to meet these requirements. So um, the department is pushing very hard to overcome the issues that George is mentioning. Um, and I'm hoping that they will stick to their guns and open up uh, the, uh, the, the whole infrastructure and the information highway so, so that all this data can flow uh, quickly. It, uh, the details, the concerns that George is worried about are addressed in these proposed rules. Thanks, Stanley, and thanks, George, for an excellent uh, set of questions you sent our way. Valerie, I wanted to bring you back. I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. During your report, you mentioned uh, Health Information Professional Week. Could you give us a little idea about how that's going to come down? We know it's coming on the week of March 24th. We're going to be promoting it. Give us a little background, will you, on the HIP Week? HIP Week, again, it's our 30th anniversary for, for HIP Week, and really this is the time for our HIM professionals uh, to shine. And uh, so uh, we do have um, uh, pretty much all of our HIM professionals can really um, broadcast this uh, during uh, within their healthcare organizations or at work, wherever they are working and whatever they are doing. Um, we're asking them, I know here at Pitt we're having a um, reception for our students to come, come out and, uh, again, wearing our um, HIM professionals uh, T-shirts and things like that just to make sure that everybody knows here and on, on campus uh, everything about uh, what we do. Uh, and so we'll be talking about that as well, and we also encourage everyone else to go out and do the same so that we can get pretty much everyone to know that uh, this week uh, occurs and when it occurs and what we do in health information management. Very good, Val. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for uh, sharing that information with us. By the way, we are going to be celebrating HIP Week 
here at ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. We thank you very much for being with us. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. We want to thank our guests for being with us today on this very special broadcast. This is our 360 edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Knoxon, and of course, Dr. Valerie Watzloff, who is the 2019 AHIMA president and the chair of the board of directors of AHIMA. And I want to thank you, Holly Louie, for sitting in today for Dr. Erica Reamer, who's on assignment. Thanks, Holly, very much. You can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD 10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.